This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Everybody, first of all and foremost, thank you Project Light for just doing what you do. I don't know everything that you do, but it seems like you're doing a very, very good job. So may HaKadosh Baruch Hu continue to bench you to be able to continue doing what you're doing and spreading the light of Torah to all. Tonight we are learning, these are the four Shlema, right? They're four Shlema. These are, okay, we're, tonight we're learning Le'ilin Ishmas Aaron ben Nisim, Chavi bat Aaron, Sadia ben Durshal, Oizer ben Abraham, and Chai, uh, Abraham ben Chaim Yehuda, and Yechaskel ben Abraham. Okay, so tonight, I was actually trying to figure out how I was going to begin tonight's class. Uh, this is a third part of a series, however, this is a standalone class as well, and that's where I was trying to figure out where and how should I start off, you know, speaking about it. And before, you know, I was going back and forth on where I should, uh, you know, begin. And the Hashem, this is going to be the last class on this series. So sort of like encompassing the actual, uh, you know, destruction of the second base amygdash. So the idea behind this, of, of why we're going through this topic, because this is really a more of a historical type of a class. Uh, we'll try to present it more in a story fashion, but it is really more of an historical uh, historical class. So th- the reason why I feel it's very, very important is is that we come on Tisha B'Av. And Emirates Hashem, Tisha B'Av should be a celebration this year. But in the small chance that it is not, and we're still in mourning over the destruction of the Beis Amikdash, the concept of mourning is that you have to know what you're mourning for. And you have to know, you know, at least ideas of, of what happened during the times of when we had the Beis HaMikdash. So today, Merit Hashem, the discussion really is going to be on the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. Meanwhile, when you see how bad the Jews had it, you know, and I'll, and I'll give you an example. When people speak about the Holocaust, it's a terrible thing. And you're like, okay, it's, of course it's terrible. It's the Holocaust. It's like the worst thing ever. But when you start learning about the stories of the Holocaust and you start learning about the history of the Holocaust, then all of a sudden that makes the Holocaust all that much more real and different. So when we're coming to mourn over the destruction of the second base of Migdash, we have to know what, what happened, what we're mourning for. So during the time of the you know, second base of Migdash, there were rulers over Eretz Yisrael, and those rulers weren't always Jewish. And this is the thing, something that we discussed in the previous two classes. But where we left off in a previous class, I want to give a short recap. Was a ruler who was the name. Uh, his name was was King Agrippa. King Agrippa. He was the grandson of Herod. Whoever knows a little bit of history of you know Israel knows who Herod was and and the his, uh, the way that he built. He was a very famous builder. And this King Agrippa, he was actually a very good king to the Jews. He uh, allowed the Jews to follow the Torah, and they put the Sanhedrin on a very high uh, you know, level. However, the Greeks, the non-Jews who were living in Israel at the time, they weren't so happy with him, and they ended up assassinating him. Now, this Agrippa, he, had, he was very, very close with a Roman emperor by the name of Claudius. And when Agrippa was murdered, Agrippa wanted his son 
I'm sorry, Claudius wanted Agrippa's son, which his name was also Agrippa's, which can get confusing. So the father's name was, and back then it wasn't when they had Junior. It was Agrippa's one and Agrippa's the second. So this is what they wanted Agrippa's the second to be the king. But the problem was that he was only 17 years old. So all his advisors advised him, says, better don't, don't go and don't put a 17 year old as a king over Israel. Rather, what you should do is to reinstate the procurators. The procurators were this Roman government that came down and and oversaw Israel. So Judea, which was Israel at that time, was overseen by, it was controlled really under, under the Roman rule. It was, they didn't have the self, even while they had the, the second base Amikdash, they still weren't over their own rulership. They were still over the rulership over the Roman, over the Roman government. And the Roman government would send them these governors, and they would oversee it, and the Jews had to pay tax, and they had to pay tribute to the, you know, to the Roman government. So they reinstituted this, these procuratorships where they had these Roman governments, governors coming down to Israel. These were non-Jewish Roman, you know, upbringing people which did not like the Jews one bit and they made it the Jew they made the Jewish life very very miserable. Uh and when a few years go by, it was the year 48 common era. The year 48. So the 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 second base of was destroyed in the year the 70th year. 70 uh 70 common era. So in the year 48 the King Agrippa's son, which is Agrippa II, he became 21 years old. And the Roman emperor decided that now Agrippa is, is, is old enough that he could be the, the ruling, you know, government over Israel. However, he only gave him a certain part. Only a certain part. The majority of Israel was still under the rulership and under the governance of these Roman governors called the procurators. And this is how, this is actually how it happened till pretty much close to the destruction of the second base of Migdash. The, you had one Roman uh, governor after another. Uh, in the year 64, there was a Roman government by the name of Florius. Florius was a, a very, very wicked person. He went and if any Jew came over to him and had any claim against a non-Jew, a foreigner of the land, it doesn't matter whether the claim was justified or not. This Florius, the governor, went and he he went and he attacked and and he persecuted who the Jew that came to him. He was very and he took the he, the the base of Migdash had its own treasury. The Florius went, he raided the the you know the base of Migdash treasury for his own personal gain, and he even in, encouraged and instigated the Roman officers, the Roman soldiers, to go and try to make riots in the Jewish quarters because then the Jews will cause problems, they'll make riots, and then they'll have an excuse to go and kill the Jews. They were looking for any reason to just to just destroy the Jews from any corner, financially killing them. And from any angle they tried to, they just wanted to destroy the Jews and wanted to enrich themselves. One day, in the year 66, 3,600 Jews were killed in the city of Yerushalayim. And Florius was hoping that now the Jewish people that were living in Yerushalayim would go and they would want to avenge. 3,600 people went and they, they died. They wanted, they were, he was hoping there were going to be an uprising and the Jewish people were going to avenge the, and there would be a whole of these riots and that would justify this Roman governor Florius to go and destroy and kill a lot more Jews and even go and take on, take on the base of Mikdash. However, to his dismay, the Jewish people organized a very peaceful march. And they wanted peace with the governor. After the governor went, then he killed 3,600 Jewish people. They wanted to make peace with the governor. But the soldiers, they were so thirsting for blood that they charged into the peaceful crowd and they killed many Jews. 
And the soldiers, they, once they get into this mindset, they went and they continued uh, until they went and they continued this assault until they reached the base of Mikdash, the area of the base of Mikdash. When the Jewish people, when they saw that he's getting, they're getting close to the base of Mikdash, that's when they're like, uh-uh-uh, up till here is where we go. And the Jewish people went and they sort of made a blockade, a human blockade around the base of Mikdash. And, you know, when sometimes you want to go and you want to start up with somebody, and then you look in their eyes and you're like, you know what? Mm-mm, no, I am not. This person is, whoa, <laughs> you know, there is fire burning. I don't want to. For whatever reasons, the Roman soldiers, they were going and they were going to attack the base of Megdash. And they took a look at the Jews and how they protected the base of Megdash. They were like, uh-uh, I'm out of here. And they turned and they fled. And even the, at, at this point in time, even the governor, Florius, which, you know, realized that there's going to be possible retribution against him, he went and he also fled from the area and he went back to Caesarea where he, where he had an estate. Now, the... Rabbanim, at the time, the, the Orthodox Jews, the from Jewish people, they were known as the Prussian or the Pharisees. They wanted to let Rome know, be like, you know, we know that there was just a whole mini war going on in Yerushalayim, but they didn't want to start up with Rome, because they knew that the starting up with Rome is going to end in disaster. So they went and they sent a delegation to Florius Superior, which his name was Gallius. He, li- he was in um, Damascus, in Syria over there, and he, they sent People, a delegation to them telling them that we weren't part of that. The Jewish people at large is still an acceptance of the Roman rule. We denounce everything that happened. And furthermore, they said, listen, Florius, this guy is destroying us. He's killing us for no reason. We want to request his removal from office. This is what they went to the people above the Roman governor. So this Gallus, Gallus, which was uh, overseeing you know, the Florius and the Roman government in, in Israel, he decided he's going to send a delegation to investigate what's going on. When he was, uh, when he sent this delegation, this delegation was joined by Agrippa II, which was the ruler of, for part of Israel at that time, and he was returning to Yerushalayim from his stay in, in, in Egypt. And he came in and presenting himself that he wanted to make peace. He wanted to make peace between the Romans, he wanted to make peace between the Jews, but the problem was that he did not want to get this Roman governor, Florius, replaced. This Roman governor was destroying the Jews from inside and out, but he would not have him in place. At this point, this put the Jew, t- took the Jews over the over level, and there was a mobs of Jews that were shouting threats against Florius and Agrippa. And all of a sudden, there was stuff that was boiling. This, this revolt was starting to, to, to boil against the Roman government. Now, before we begin, before we continue, we have to go and take a little pause on this and sideline of what was going on in Eretz Israel during this time. Unfortunately, very, very unfortunately, during uh, this time, there were different groups in Eretz Israel, and this is known as the, you know, which, which later we can under, understand Sinas Chinam, uh, which is the reason why the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. And, and we know the Gemara, and you look at different Midrashim and the different Gemaras that speak about, there's so many other reasons that our sages, our Chachamim, tell us that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. But what stands out always is what is sinas chinam. That's what comes out always. That this is the reason why we don't have a we don't have a base of mikdash. So I want to explain to you why that's one one of the reasons of why that sticks out so much, and that's really the goal of tonight to see you know to see first of all what happened during there, but to see that really the the problems that came out out of Eretz Yisrael and out of the destruction of the base of mikdash was really our fault. There were many, many different factions. There were many different groups in Israel at this time. 
And it wasn't like the modern groups, like you have Democrats and Republicans, and each one has their own very organized structure. These were three sort of not organized, but three ideas, let's call it. One of them was the Prussian. These were the Rabbanim, the, the from people, the normal people, the healthy people, the people that went and wanted to do everything al Taira. This is the mainstream Jews. And they wanted, they were very, very pragmatic. They wanted Judaism to survive. They wanted peace. And they were willing to go on and continue with the Roman rule being ruling over Israel, over the temple, over the base of Migdash. They were fine with that as long, they would pay the Roman government as long as they could continue serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and as long as they could continue going and 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 being a from person without having all these other you know issues in the foreign lands, and they were fine with having a, a foreign rule, but they were able to keep their own you know Jewish identity. They want what they what they wanted is is they wanted peace. Then you had a different group, and we'll call these group the Zilats. And the reason why we'll call them is that that's what they were called. They were called the Zilats. They were this these this actually group was a bunch of different groups among them. There was something, they were called the Sasari, they were, or the Sikarikon uh, group, where they, the reason why they were called that is they had these mini daggers, and these daggers were were sort of like a, a like a small hook, like a small shape, and they would be able to conceal it very secretively, that they would be able to go around. These, these people were brutal murderers. They, they were bandits and murderers. They, they, this is what they, this is what they did for. This was their profession. And, uh, they carried these little knives that they were walking in a crowded place. They could quickly commit a murder and nobody could even figure out who did it. That's, that's how quick they were. Uh, and they were, uh, people of crime and they excused their crimes with inventing political reasons and making it as if they're resisting Rome and that's why their true motive was to, to overthrow Rome. But really the true motive was greed. There was another group called the, uh, the Beryonim and these were also a criminal, criminal element and they were masquerading their, their actions under the, these, this, uh, this guise of nationalism. And you have a bunch of these different little sects which really were criminals, but they wanted to fight back against the Romans. And they wanted to, to go and destroy the Roman rule, and they wanted to be independent. But really, they really thirsted for blood, they really thirsted for greed, they thirsted for power, and they utilized this to sort of push it forward. Now again, this is how it started, many other people eventually joined in. Then you had, so you had the second group, this is the group that wanted to fight. So you have a first group that wanted sort of to make peace, you know, live with, live, you know, with the Roman government over them, but be able to continue doing what they're doing. Then you have a second group, wanted to fight. Then you had a third group. And this third group was the Tzedukim. The Tzedukim, these are the people that denied the divine origin of the oral law. The divine, the Torah Shabbat said it doesn't exist. And they made their own excuses and their own interpretations on the Torah. And all that they wanted to do is really just live their lives in more of a Hellenistic, more of a modernized way and live their life with pursuing the pleasures that they wanted to without any, any issues with the Torah. So they started manipulating the Torah saying that this is okay, this is not okay. And they, they, you know, sort of, changed the, the, the concept of, of what the true Torah represents. These people are very loyal to Rome. These people, the Tzedukim, are also very, very wealthy. And the Tzedukim, as we spoke about before, they would bribe, the Roman government was ruling over Israel, and the Roman government was the one who decided who is going to be the Kohen Gadol. And, it's a, and the Roman government realized that this could be a very lucrative position because they saw a lot of people wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. And 
it ended up being like a sort of a bribing war, a, a bidding war. And the tzedukim would go and they would have the most money and they would bribe the Roman government to become the position of a Kohen Gadol. Meaning that you have Kohanim Gadolim, you had the highest level of, of righteous people that they were. There are people that didn't even believe in the Tarish of Alpet. And this is where the Jewish people were holding. Now, the, at this point in time, you have the tzedukim that were... There was, they, they had their own coin gadol. And now the Jewish people are starting to, they're, they're starting to brew, they're starting to revolt against the Roman government. They were like, enough with this. Even they, they didn't want the tzedukim. They didn't want the, these Sadducees to go and overrun the, you know, rule the temple. So they went, and now these zealots, let's call them, they went and they started pushing out these tzedukim. And they ended up going and putting in their own, you know, coin gadol a sort of a very extremist to the point that they did things that was not according to the customs of halacha of the Jewish of the Jewish people. For example, if a non-Jew would want to go and bring a carbon in the base of Medesh, they were allowed to. It was no problem. They were allowed to. Again, there were certain criteria, but generally they were allowed to. They, all of a sudden, the extremists that came in, they decided, no, they're not going to allow any of that. And they pushed the tzedukim out. Now the tzedukim were very close to Roman government. They were very wealthy, very influential, very powerful. So they went... And they started going to complain to the Roman government. And they went and they complained to Agrippa II. And what, how did they complain? They didn't just say they pushed us out. They went and they started speaking that said that what? That the Jewish people, they're going and they're fighting against Rome. Not that they're fighting against us. Because they're fighting against you, Roman government, who could care less about you. Yeah, okay, fine. They're fighting against you. Deal amongst yourself. But now they're saying, oh, no, no, no. They started saying, no, they're fighting against Rome, the Roman emperor, the Roman government. So now all of a sudden, the Roman government decided that they're going to send armed forces. And Agrippa II, who was the king of Israel at that time, the king of a part of Israel, he went and he gave his own army to, to Roman government to want to try to drive the Zilats away from the base of Migdash from ruling that area. At the eighth day of Rosh Chodesh of Av, of, of, in the year of 66, the fighting began in Yerushalayim. And one of the rulers of the, the leaders of the Zilats was named as Menachem. And Menachem, he was able to push the Roman, the Roman army and the Agrippa's army outside of the upper city of Yerushalayim. And during this fight, even though that ultimately the Jewish zealots were successful, this Menachem, this leader, he was killed. And there was another zealot, another person who put, was put in his place, a Lazar ben Aninas. He was, uh, he ended up going and he, he uh, took over uh, Menachem. And now he was a very aggressive person and he controlled over Yerushalayim. At this point, the Jewish people of Yerushalayim declared themselves independent of Roman rule. The Romans tried to go and attack them, try to take back, and they were able to push back and they won. Now the success of the Jews against the huge, huge Roman Empire, this sent shockwaves throughout the entire Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was very, very large at the time, one of the largest you know, throughout history. They took over almost the entire world. And the, the pride that they had is that they couldn't have Israel, they couldn't have Jerusalem be independent. Because if 
Israel, if Jerusalem becomes independent, then what's going to happen with Athens? What's going to happen with Alexandria? What's going to happen with Damascus? What's going to happen with Spain? They were controlling so many parts of the world. And if one person says, you know what, I can overtake them, then everybody thinks that they could overtake them. It's just like in a classroom. In a classroom, when you have one kid that's a little chutzpahdek and goes and starts speaking out and in disrespects, and if the teacher doesn't do something right then and there, every, all the kids are going to be like, you know what, this teacher is a pushover. We could have our way with that. We could do whatever we want. And the Roman government says we can't let this happen. It's not that they uh, bothered them so much about Israel, but they saw that this was other people are going to start talking. Their pride, their gava, they went and it started stuck them. So Roman government went and they, put, they exerted their full force against the Jewish people to go and to crush them. And even though the rabbis and the Jewish sages at the time, they said that if you go against war against Rome, this is, this is suicide. The, the zealots did not, did not listen. They, and in fact, in hindsight, if you look into it, it's only very interesting if you study history. The fact that the zealots won over Rome and Agrippa's army was actually what caused, what ended up causing the destruction of Yerushalayim. Because if they wouldn't have won, so then the Roman government would have kept on, you know, ruling over them, but they would have kept Yerushalayim. As long as you pay taxes. At the end of the day, money talks. It doesn't matter. Well, all I care about is the dinero. That's all I care about. So, the Roman government, when they went and their pride was taken, when their pride was hit, they would be like, no, no, no. Now it's something else. Now you're, it's personal. Now we're going to go and we're going to pull a full force onto you. Now, first, we know that the, there was a, a Roman general by the name of Nero. He went in, you know, it didn't work out because he ended up converting and the mayor Balanes ended up coming out from him. But the Roman government ended up sending somebody by the name of Vespasian. Vespasian was a very, very powerful Roman general and they, they sent him to go and put Israel back on control. It was the year 67. And Vespasian began his campaign against this Jewish state. Now, he decided what he's going to do He's not going to go straight to Yerushalayim. He's not going to go straight to Jerusalem. What he is going to do, he's going to leave Yerushalayim to last. He's going to go and he's going to conquer every other city in Israel until, and then leave Yerushalayim to last. Because every other city was not surrounded. They didn't have a wall. During the olden days, if the city had a wall, it was very hard to penetrate them. It was very hard to fight them. It wasn't like nowadays you have airplanes that you could go over. If there was a wall, that was it. There was nothing else that you could do unless you climbed the wall. And they had stationed people all around the wall to go and per, you know, shoot arrows, you know, pour boiling oil. They had different tactics to go and prevent people from climbing up the wall. So a wall, a walled city in the olden days was a very, very powerful city. So Vespasian said, I'm going to go around the coast. And I'm going to take every Jewish city and then I'm going to go to, to, uh, um, to Yerushalayim. One of the first cities that, that, uh, that Vespasian took, there was a Jewish commander, it was in the Galilee, and this was a Jewish commander by the name of Yosef ben Matisyahu. And he is better known nowadays and as none other than Josephus Flavius. He was a Jewish commander, and he actually sort of paid his way into power. He, he used you know, money to exploit the Jewish division and to, sort, to, to further powerful, put power to himself until he became a, uh, you know, a leader of a very, very large group of, of troops of 65,000 men. And the Jewish people were controlling. They said, you know what, like it's getting out of control. They wanted to recall him. They said, you know what, you're not, you're not this Roman general anymore. They wanted, you're not this Jewish general anymore. They wanted to take him back. 
But Josephus started laughing. He says, I have 65,000 people under me, loyal to me. He was confident and strong, and he just laughed them off. He says, you want to, he says no, I am taking care of myself. No one's answering to me. Or better yet, I'm not answering to nobody. Josephus' forces, however, were, came into contact with the Roman forces, and they were very, very quickly defeated. Josephus himself was able to escape to Tveria, and he was able to stay in one of Herod's fortresses. And in the spring of the year 67, Vespasian laid siege to that same fortress. And for 47 days, there was a bloody battle ranging back from the Jewish people to Vespasian to the Roman people. And finally, Josephus realized that they're going to lose. The fortress is going to fall down and Josephus and the, and the Roman government the, and Vespasian is going to come in and is going to take over this, this entire town. So a lot of the, the zealots of the group, a lot of the, the warriors, they decided that it's better to die at their own hands than to be sold into slavery. So they made a suicide pact. And they, unfortunately they went and they killed everybody in the town men, women, and children, and they killed themselves. But a few people decided that they're not going to go on part of the suicide pact. Josephus was one of them. He said that it's better to be alive and not be considered a uh, hero. Vespasian, when he, and, and Josephus went and he surrendered. And Vespasian realized that this Josephus would be a very great value to him. A sort of a Jewish expert and an advisor. So he employed Josephus. He says, now you're working for me. And Josephus realized that, and he assessed correctly so, that the war against the Jewish state, the Jewish people are not going to win. And he started pleading with the Jews to lay down their weapons, lay down their arms, the country is done. Let us go and, and surrender to Rome. But the zealots who wanted to fight, they labeled Josephus a traitor. And they said, no, we're going to fight till the end. Now, we just take a little pause over here for a second to know Josephus, Josephus, if everybody is not familiar with uh, history, Josephus was a Jewish historian. Uh, and throughout the, um, this war, he accompanied the Roman troops and he was able to see everything that was happening from the Roman standpoint and from the Jewish standpoint, because he was a Jew. And he realized that there was an impending doom. He was realized that it was a tragedy that was soon going to happen. And he decided, and he started recording all his observations. And in fact, a lot of what we have today, a lot of our information that we have of what happened during the destruction of the second base of Mikdash is from Josephus' writings. And even though the sincerity, the virtue, the authenticity of Josephus has been called into question, this really originated from the Christian church of where they went and they started questioning. And the reason for that is that Josephus recorded every detail in that affected the Jewish political you know, life during the first century of the Common Era. But there was one problem in the Christian church. Is that J.C., their Messiah, this is when he lived at this time. And there's not even one mention of the Christian Messiah. So they were like, wait a minute. If he is not going and, and, if he is not going and, and speaking about the Christian Messiah, then must be, he must be a faker. But really, what was the reason? Is that J.C. at that time, and even at this time, it was a nothing. It didn't come even a blimp on the radar to all the rabbis. It was a nothing, and that's why he didn't even come. The Josephus didn't even need to write about it because he didn't even mean anything. He was a gornish of a gornish, as they say. There was nothing. But the Christians were like, wait, oh, it must be that he's a faker. It must be that he's a... So the Christian historians, they started saying, oh, Josephus must be... There must be something wrong if he didn't write about it. But really, when we look at, the, you know, a lot of Rabbanim, uh, including Rashi, 
actually ended up quoting Josephus from his for historical um, for historical facts, and even modern archaeological discoveries go and and show the accuracy of Josephus' uh, descriptions of what happened. Uh, so in any case, and this is by the way, that if you want to look at the, in the archaeological, these are the, these excavations that happened in specifically in Masada. Very interesting, but a different discussion. Anyways, unpause. We paused. I don't know if you remember. We paused. We paused. Now we're unpausing. So Josephus was the one who was recording everything. Now during this time, there was another area that was um, had a sort of resistance against the Roman government. Not in Yerushalayim yet. It was in the Galilee, and this was uh, led by a person by the name of Yochanan. Yochanan, and he was from the Gush Chalav. When Vespasian, you know, surrounded his city, Yochanan realized that, you know, Gush Chalav, it's going down. There's going to be a death trap. The, the Roman government, the Roman, uh, you know, army is going to capture this also. So what they decided to do is they took, he took his, uh, I guess, his top, you know, warriors, and they escaped. And they, instead of protecting their, their city, they went and they escaped. And by the way, it wasn't like they were the local sheriffs at the time. They were also, their, their focus was, uh, you know, they were robbers by trade. That was their profession. And, uh, but he went and he snuck out and he went to Yerushalayim to, to sort of regroup. Again, remember, at this point in time, Vespasian didn't start with Yerushalayim. So everybody was able, what happened, what was happening at this time is that Vespasian was conquering one city after another city after another city. And people were running away. And where were they running to? They were running to one place that they could run to, and that's Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was getting very, very overcrowded at this point in time. And Yochanan, this, this uh, um, Zilat leader, he comes in over there, and he starts telling them, yeah, we could have had the... You know, he started talking, you know, his deceitful talk. And I said, we could, we could take on the Romans, we're able to take them on, we saw them, we fought them first time, we were able to take him. And a lot of the younger people, they were drawn to his provocative uh, talk. And he, Yochanan, now became the leader of the Zilats in Yerushalayim at this point in time. Now, the... Rabbi Shem ben Gamliel, which was one of the Gedolim of the time, he realized that the Zilats were, were, you know, not only were they taking over the Jewish, you know, army, let's call it, but they were also taking off the spiritual part. They put themselves a, you know, coin gadol over there that wasn't a righteous coin gadol. So they, Rabbi Shem ben Gamliel put up together an assembly to go and reject the Zilats. And one of the participants was Hanan. Hanan was a legitimate Kohen Gadol, a real Kohen Gadol. And when, when he, he, he wanted to speak, and he comes with tears in his eyes. And he goes up in front of the whole assembly, and he goes, it's better to have died than to witness the temple, the base that make this be defiled by Jewish murderers. There are Jewish people that are murdering other people. He says, why are we silent? Why do we see this murder? I mean, we see the base that make this being defiled, and we're silent? And he goes on, he says, the blame laws lies with us. And he aroused the people to go and fight against the Zilats. These people are not the, the Zilats were in the Tzaddikim. And the people that were righteous, there were people that were religious, were like, what are they doing to the base of Migdash? And they went and they started fighting against these Zilats. And there's a civil war that was starting going on in Yerushalayim. You have over here the from people, the Orthodox people going and they were fighting the war of Hashem. And meanwhile, you're having the Zilats that are fighting a bloody war for their own personal gain. And here's where the civil war began. The zealots, they saw all this war, they saw their people coming at them, and they were fighting the war, and they saw that they couldn't, so they started retreating. And they retreated into the base of Migdash. They used the base of Migdash as their fortress. And Hanan, which was a righteous Kohen Gadol, he said he can't attack people in the base of Migdash. 
So what happened was he's surrounded with 6,000 armed from people, surrounded the base of Mikdash. But now you had this Yochanan, the Zilat inside the base of Mikdash, and he's desperate. He has a, he's, he's under siege. So he goes and he said, sends out words to these Edomites. The Edomites were the, the people that lived in southern Judea at that time. And they converted to, 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 to Judaism, but not a full sort of conversion. They were wild people, uh, appetite for battle. They hated the Romans, they hated the elite. And Yochanan told the Edom, the, these Edomites, says that, that the, the Jewish people are fighting against us. The other Jewish people are fighting against us. And they want to give the city over to the Romans. And these Edomites they hated the Romans. So they decided they're going to go come and they're going to help the Edomites. So you have the Yochanan and the Zilats in the base of Mikdash. Surrounding the base of Mikdash is we have Hanan and his troops. And then you have coming out from outside there was these Edomites. And they're coming and they started attacking Hanan and the from people. They went and they started attacking them. And by the way, I'm calling them from, but it's really not the correct terminology. It's just the people that went and followed the, the Prussian, the, 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 the Rabbanim, let's call them. And unfortunately, during this time when the, the Edomites came in, they, they went and they, dis, and, they, and they killed many, many, many Jews, and including Hanan. Hanan, the Kohen Gadol, was murdered at this time. The, and what happened was is they were able, these Edomites were able to push away all the people that went, and now Yochanan was able to take full control back where he was before. Now, what was happening in a place called Misada, not too far away from Yerushalayim, there was uh, Misada, if anybody has ever been to Israel, there's a, you know, now it's a beautiful place where people go into, into tour, but it was, a, you know, it was really an edifice that was really built, you know, like with, with such chachma. And there, there was being now controlled by one of the Sicarion. Remember the dagger, the dagger people that we were speaking about before? There was a person by the name of Shimon. And Shimon was a leader of a troop of another bandits. And he was, he went and he raided Engedi, which is right next to Masada, and for supplies, and he was controlling a Masada. And he went, and he decided that he is going to go, and now he has desire, he sees that Yochanan right now in, in Yerushalayim, he is the one in control, he is the one who has all the power. Shimon has his own bandit group, he has his own army, a little army, and he decides that he wants to be the ruler, he wants to be the leader. So he starts making a march towards Yerushalayim, and he's capturing every village. Again, remember, these are Jewish people. These are Jewish people, and they're fighting against other Jewish people. They're capturing every single village. Begin to understand why Chamim are speaking about Tzinas And they're coming, and they're capturing every single village along the way. Some of Yochanan's you know, group realized that Shimon is coming. So they went... And they snuck in to, sh- to the camp, to Shimon's camp, and they kidnapped Shimon's wife. And they brought the Shimon's wife into, uh, into Yerushalayim, saying, by the way, Shimon, stay, stay where you are. You know, we have the power to capture you, basically stay away. However, Shimon didn't like that, you know, uh, you know, piece of advice that they were trying to give him. And he got very angry, and he started marching straight through Yerushalayim. And when he got to Yerushalayim, he surrounded it. And all, not only that, the people that were walking out of Yerushalayim, he captured them. Again, this is Jews capturing Jews. And some of them he murdered. Some other of them he cut off their hands. And he sent them back inside. And Shimon goes and he says, that unless his wife gets returned to him, this is what's going to happen to the entire Yerushalayim. 
So the zealots inside, Yochan and his group, are very frightened. Say, Shimon, the guy's crazy, look what he's doing. And he's insane. So they decide that they're going to send, ba- send out Shimon's wife. And Shimon's wife goes out, and he's reunited with his wife, but he wasn't happy, Shimon. He wanted Yerushalayim. He wanted the power. He wanted that to be in his hands. So he went, and he started marching into the city, and he started ransacking the homes, he started murdering, he started, and, and they were like, the, the people were a little bit off, they, they dressed in a very bizarre clothing, the Shimon's men, and they were acting in very insane behavior, murdering and pillaging as they are going across the Yerushalayim. And they ended up capturing a big part of Yerushalayim, and they forced Yochanan and his group of zealots to go inside the base of Mikdash. So now at this point, you have... Shimon, who is surrounding the base of Megdash, in control of sort of the outer city, and then Yochanan and his group in the base of Megdash. Now to make matters even worse, there was another person amongst Yochanan's group, amongst the Zilats, and his name was Elazar, Eliezer ben Shimon. And he thought that why is Yochanan going, and he's ruling this, you know, the inside of the, you know, the, the base of Megdash. He says, I am more powerful than I should rule. So he convinced a fellow number of his zealots to join. And what he did is, remember, they were in the base of Migdash. So he took his group and he put them into, they were in the outside of the base of Migdash. Now he put them into the inside of the base of Migdash, into the more the inside of the base of Migdash. And now they were fighting against each other. So now you have over here three different groups of warriors, of Jewish warriors, that are each were fighting against each other for the power to be on the highest warrior. You had Shimon who commanded the outside city. You had Yochanan who surrounded the, the base of Migdash, the courtyard. And now you had the Elazar who went and controlled the in, inner temple, the inner base of Migdash, inner, inner area. So you have over here, the Yochanan was really in the worst aspects, he was in the middle. You had, the, you had, you had Eliezer, you had Yochanan, and then you had Shimon. Now if you begin to realize how the Yidin, unfortunately, we cause our own destruction. Now, what was miraculous at this time, mir- not short of miraculous at this time, crazy at this, listen to this. Everybody was still Jewish, right? And everybody was fighting against Jewish, and there was a base of Mikdash. And each part of Yerushalayim was controlled by a different faction. But what happens if one person decided, wait a minute, I want to bring a carbon? You know what happened? The miracle was, is that each one gave permission. You want to bring a carbon? By all means. And they let them right in. One came in, and they came in from one section to another section, all the way in to, give, to bring the carbon. And what was even crazier was, is that the fighting continued around them. They were bringing a carbon, and they were fighting, uh, you know, right around, the, you know, bringing the carbon. To the point that, you know, arrows were thrown, spears were thrown, you know, swords were drawn, and blood was spilled. People that wanted to bring carbon, their blood ended up being spilled with the carbon. And the base of Megdash ended up becoming sort of like a cemetery. At this point, there was, you know, I don't even know how much, there's so much to speak about over here. Starvation started taking a, a toll. Because what happened was, is that the Zilat, what we spoke before, they wanted the Jewish people to fight. But the Jewish people, they were not, uh, the majority of them didn't want to fight. They were following the Rabbanim. They didn't want to fight. The, the small percentage wanted to fight, but the majority didn't want to fight. So the Zilas, they tried to go and push them into a corner to make them fight. And how they did that was that the Jewish people had so much food, so much, so much, you know, uh, um, product, I guess you could call it, to suffice them for 21 years to be self-sufficient. 
But the Zilats wanted to go and cause them to go and to fight, so they burnt down all the storehouses that they had. And of course, that led into starvation. There was a very, very wealthy woman by the name of Martha, or Marsa, and she sent her servant to buy some flour, buy some fine flour, the highest level of flour. The, again, the servant, I guess, wasn't that smartest. Or I don't know what the reason was, but the servant goes out and says, there's no, more fi- there's no more fine flour, there's only white flour. So she goes and says, get the fine flour, get the white flour, not a problem. He goes back and says, by the time I got there, it was all gone, there's only coarse flour. She says, fine, get the coarse flour. He goes back and he says, there's only left barley. And he says, just get me anything. By the time he goes out, there was nothing left. She decides, you know what? I'm going for myself. She goes out to try to find something to eat. And she was starving. And not only she was starving, that she, what happens when you're hungry and you don't eat for a long time, your body seems, uh, swells. If anybody's seen any pictures in the Holocaust, you see how the, even the, the bodies, the skinny people, it looks like their stomach swelled up. Because it's sort of a reverse, what happens is metabolically, metabolically, the, or physiologically, better yet, is where the body sort of reverses itself and it sort of starts, you know, to, to swell up. And this Martha, her, her, her feet swelled up that she couldn't even fit her feet into her sandals. So she walked out barefoot. This is one of the wealthiest women. She walked out barefoot. And she was, uh, you know, walking over there. And each step was a, so painful to her. Besides the sores that she had, it was also so the humiliation, the degradation, the highest level, the aristocrat, the highest, most wealthiest per- family. This is how she's walking out. And not only was she in such a, a uh, you know, state, Yerushalayim also was in a very, very bad state. A bad state. It was such a beautiful city. It was so beautiful. Now it's so beautiful. Kavachomer of what happened when the time of the Beis Hamikdash was standing. Everything was so beautiful. But now it was filthy, full, full of decay, full of garbage all over the place. And Martha's foot touched a piece of dung. And this caused her to become faint and she fell on the ground. When she fell on the ground, she was laying down and she saw a fig, a rotting fig right next by, right next to her. This is a fig that was used by Rabbi Tzaddik. Rabbi Tzaddik was, was a, a, a rabbi, a righteous person who fasted for 40 years so the destruction of the base of Migdash shouldn't happen. And when he wanted to go and revive himself, he couldn't eat anything, so he would take a, a, a fig and he would suck the juice out of it to the point that he was so skinny, he was so that, that when, when he swallowed, you saw... You saw him. You saw the food go down the, you know, from from his neck. That's how skinny it was. So this was one of the pits that Rab Tzaddik was was you know sucked on, and then he finished. There was no juice out of it, so it went into the garbage. And this is and it started rotting. And this is what this Martha saw. She took it, and she had no food. She was starving, and she started sucking on the juice of the fig, whatever laid. And she was she started trembling in revulsion, sort of like gagging. And she took all her wealthy jewels, her gold and, and diamonds that she had, and she says, what, what, what is worth to me this? And she takes it and she throws it back, and throws it into the street, and unfortunately she falls back and she passes away. The Rabbi Yochanan was walking through the streets, and this is what was happening during this time. And he saw the starvation of what was going on. And he noticed a bunch of men, they were huddled over a pot. And they were were boiling straw. And each man was sipping a little bit of the straw, water, not the straw, the straw, water, and passing it over to the next person. And Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai says, this is weird, the Jewish people, look how far this Jewish nation has fallen. He says, they're sharing the same food as animals. 
and they're eating it with pleasure. So how much longer are people going to suffer? Because right now, the Jewish people, they were in control over the zealots. The zealots surrounded the city. And they, were, they didn't allow anybody to leave. They said, we got to fight. And if you go and you give yourself up to the Romans, that means you're a traitor. And they killed anybody that did that. Anybody that gave themselves up to the Romans and they wanted to surrender. They wanted to fight and they did it by force. They burned down the, the supplies that we had. They burned down everything and they wanted everybody to fight. But people were starving. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the leader of the generation, he happened to be related to one of the generals of the Zilas by the name of Abba Sikra. And he calls over his nephew. His nephew was one of the generals. And he says, how much longer are you going to cause the Jewish people to die from starvation? So the, the Zilat says, you know what? You're right. Uncle, you're right. He says, but what can I say? If I speak up, they're going to kill me as a traitor. So Rabbi Yochanan Zaka says, give me a plan. Give me something that I could do. Let me, give me an idea. So, Abba Sirka, his nephew goes and says, pretend that you're sick. And then, put spoiled meat around you. And then pretend that you pass away. And have your students go, and carry you outside the city. And once you get outside the city, then you're going to be free to do whatever it is that you need to do. Speak to Vespasian, speak to the general, whatever it is that you need. So, Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh decided that's what he's going to do. He decided, he pretended that he was sick, he put some dead animal meat around him, and it started to smell. And then he, the word got out that he, uh, that, he, that he died. And he instructed his students, specifically only his students, because a, a dead body is, very, is much more heavier than a live body. So his students were also in it. And two of the students who were carrying it was Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua. They carried Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai's body. And when they carried it out, the zealots over there, they were guarding. They didn't want anybody to leave. They said, let us pierce the body. Let us make sure that this body is dead. And the students were like, really? This is the leading rabbi. You're going to go and you're going to stick a sword in the leading rabbi's body? Well, the Romans are going to start making fun of us. That we kill our own sages. So the zealots, you know, army, they said, you know what? You can go. And they let them out. At this point in time, Vespasian ended up capturing every other, you know, city in Israel, and now he made a siege around Yerushalayim. So, Rabbi Yochanan gets out, and he sneaks out of the, out of, there was a siege, by the way, from both angles. You had the Roman siege on the outside of the wall, and then you have the Jewish siege on the inside of the wall, that they didn't let the Jewish people leave. But for dead people, they, you know, at times they did let them go out. So they let, they put the, the, the students took out Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, they put him in, he was like in his coffin, in his box, put him down on the ground, and they went back in. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai waited until nightfall, gets out of the coffin, and goes into the Roman, the Roman camp. He goes into the Roman camp, and they capture him right away, they bring him up in front of Vespasian, and he goes to Vespasian, and he says, peace unto you Caesar, peace unto you emperor. So, the Vespasian, the general, says, I should kill you for two reasons. Number one, I'm not emperor, and you greet me as an emperor. Number two, if I am emperor, what took you so long to get to me? So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai goes and it says that if you're not emperor now, you're going to be emperor very, very soon. Why? Because there's a Pasuk in Isaiah, the chapter 10, verse 34, it says, Lebanon, which Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai goes and explains according to tradition, is refers to the base of Megdash. It's only going to fall ba'adir yipol. It's only going to fall in a mighty one, and a king, a leader. And you're the one who's going to destroy, you know, going to be able to take over your life. And that means that you have to be a leader. You have to be a king. 
So the Romans took, and there's different you know opinions on how if the if Vespasian became emperor right then and there, or it was a few days later. But I did one version of the you know of the story was the Romans they, they took Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, and they put him inside this very dark room, and it wasn't just a dark room that there was curtains all around. It was a it was sort of like this building that had a room. And then inside had another room, and inside it was seven different rooms, one inside the other, without any windows. And the innermost room was pitch, pitch black. And that's where they threw Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai. And the soldiers, the Romans would ask him every once in a while, you know, they go to the rabbi, he says, what time is it? And they go and they ask, what, you know, and Rabbi Yochanan would reply exactly what time it was. And they're like, how does a rabbi know what time it is? He doesn't have the sun, he's sitting over there. And they finally, they go and they ask him during the day, he tells them the time. They ask him at night, he tells them the time. Finally, the Roman guard, the soldiers, they go to him and say, like, Rabbi, you got to tell us. How do you know the time? This was no watches that were developed back then. He's like, how do you know the time? It's almost 2,000 years ago. How do you know the time? So the rabbi goes and responds. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai goes and responds. says, you know, what do you think I'm doing here? He says, I'm studying Torah. I'm learning Torah by heart. And he says, I'm, I know how much Mishnayas I'm able to study every hour. And I know I'm able to study 10 chapters every hour. So, since I'm constantly studying Torah, I know how many, you know, how, how, how much I'm learning. And hence, I know I keep track of the time because I know how much I learn and how much a period of the time is. Three days go by. And Vespasian is bathing in the, in the river. And he finishes, he goes out of the river, he puts on one shoe. And all of a sudden, the messenger comes out and says that the emperor has died. Nero has died. And Vespasian has been elected the next emperor. Vespasian then tried to put on his other shoe, but he could not. So he goes and he calls over Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai. And he says, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, you're obviously very smart. You knew that I was going to be emperor, and now I really am emperor. But I have a question for you. How come I can put on one shoe, but the other shoe doesn't fit? He says, the shoe didn't shrink. He says, what happened over here? Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai quotes a Pasuk in Mishle, in the 15th chapter, in the 30th Pasuk. He goes, and uh, I think it's actually a 32nd passage. Lev Samach Yetiv Gehal. The Rabbi Yochanan goes and says that good news makes the bone fat. So, so he says, you just got good news. So your bones expanded. So Vespasian says, so what can I do to go and, and put my shoe? I can't walk around with one shoe. And now the emperor, I want to be limping. And I have a crimp walk. What am I going to do over here? I'm not from the crib over here. I'm going to sit over here and walk like a... This is, what am I supposed to do? So... Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh goes and says, think about someone that you don't like. And then your bones are going to shrink, and then you're going to be able to put on your shoe. Vespasian did that, and he was able to put on his other shoe. So impressed he was with Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh, he says, you can make with me requests, and I will grant you the request. So Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh goes, and he requests for three things. He requests that Yavna and the Chachamim should be spared. When you destroy Yerushalayim, when you destroy Israel, spear Yavne, spear the city of Yavne, the city of the sages, let's call it. Spear the family of Rabban Gamliel, which is the lineage of Mashiach. And finally, heal Rabbi Tzaddik. He asked him for those three, three things. Titus, you know, at this point, Vespasian said, you know what, you want these, you know, these uh, three things, no problem. You know, like, it's not an issue at all. And he says, granted. And he grants him those, those uh, three things. Vespasian now leaves, because uh, now he's emperor, and he appoints his son Titus as the, to assume the, the military command. Now, if we pause what's happening outside of the Roman government, let's, let's move into to what's happening in the Jewish, uh, um, you know, in, in Yerushalayim. 
now the, the Yom Tov of Pesach is coming up. And now you had Yochanan controlling the outer temple, Elazar controlling the inner temple over there, and they were, you know, obviously fighting with each other. And, uh, you know, at this point in time, they were, you know, it went down from three people now to two people, you know, that were going and fighting over it. So they decided that they're going to make a truce. They're going to make a truce, no fighting, because now it's Pesach, and this is the point where people were murdering people. But they said, but people want to offer the carbon Pesach. So what are we going to do? We have to stop fighting. And that's what happened. The people, the Jewish people are murdering other people. Stop murdering other people. Why? Because we have to go and offer the carbon Pesach. And unfortunately, Yochanan took advantage of this. He disguised his men as ordinary citizens that they wanted to come in and offer the carbon Pesach. But they had weapons under their robes. On Erev Pesach, when the base of Migdash was crowded, of everybody going and giving the carbon of Pesach, these Yochanan and his men ripped out their, their weapons from their clothing, and they started shouting like animals, and they started running through the place, and it, it just a war started happening in the base of Migdash. And they were unable to distinguish, Elazar, uh, you know, Elazar wasn't able to distinguish who was Yochanan's group, who was, a, who was a regular citizen, and there was slaughter that was happening. And at this point, Yochanan regained control over the entire temple. Eliezer went and he he went onto the into the tunnels of the you know of the base of Megdash. And now, now we're down from the three faction that we said before. Now we're down to the two, and now we're down to the two. So now we had Yochanan controlling the base of Megdash, but Shimon was still controlling the outside. And now, Titus was going over there, and he started doing something. He built something called battering rams. If you're not familiar with ancient warfare, battering rams, think of it as like a, um, this, I don't know how to explain it the easiest way. Here, this is a maybe, the SWAT team has this sort of like this metal piece that if they want to break down the door, they take this like tubular metal piece and they go back and forth and they bang it into the door and that sort of bangs the door open. I don't know if you're familiar with that. With that. Sort of it's a round tubular steel piece that's very heavy and it could, to destroy a door very, very quickly. A battering ram is that on steroids. It's that you're taking huge, huge, very, very heavy wood, and you put it, and this is how they would destroy walls. They would go and they would take the this big, you know, wooden log, very heavy wooden log, and they would let it go, and it would and would swing into the, it was like held on by ropes, and it would swing into the wall, and they would take it back and forth, back and forth, and this is how they would try to go and destroy walls. Titus, at this point in time, he had all these battering rams, and he was trying to go and destroy the, you know, Yerushalayim and its walls. And he also built towers, 75-foot towers, that, what was the reason for the towers? Because if you have a battering ram, that they're going, uh, people by the foot of the wall, you have the Jewish people on top, they look down, and they pour, they shoot arrows down, or they shoot, they pour down boiling oil, or they throw down some fireballs, whatever it is that they throw down, they throw it down to try to prevent them. So, what Titus did is that he built these these towers to sh- sort of almost to the level of the way that the walls of Yerushalayim was. So they were able, if people came on the on the walls, they wanted to go and pour down boiling fire or arrows, the, the people on the towers would go and shoot arrows back at them. So this gave them the ability to go and continue to, uh, to, to, to sort of try to break down the walls at the time. 
And now this was happening, so Yochanan and Shimon were fighting inside. But the walls were shaking, it was like an earthquake that was happening. The walls were shaking, Titus was taking with these huge trees and trying to break down the walls. So Yochanan and Shimon decided they're going to make a truce. And they went and they tried to throw stones and throw fire and torches at the Romans. And they were able to get the Romans to temporarily withdraw from their machines. Because they were scared. They were, the, people, the Jewish people were throwing things over and the Romans were right there. So they started backing off. The Jewish people, the Jewish, the, the Zealots, they saw this opportunity. So they snuck out and they started lighting fires to these machines. So Titus sees the Jews coming out. So he charged the Jews at that point in time. And they try to take out the fire, so they spent a lot of time and effort and money to go and build these towers to go and take down the, the, you know, the, the walls of Yerushalayim. And during this mini battle, 12 Jews were killed and one was captured. And Titus ordered that this Jew would be crucified on the walls of the city. And this is what something that Romans did. Romans would go and they crucified, they would nail people to, the, to, to like crosses or to like uh, wooden, stack, wooden stakes to go and other people to see what happens if you mess with the Romans. The next night, Titus ordered that the, uh, these, these 75-foot wooden towers be pushed closer and build, be built also closer to the, to the wall. And in the middle of the night, the tower was improperly constructed and it collapsed. It fell because of itself. But the Romans, they thought that the Jewish people were going and they were fighting against them. So they couldn't, they were in panic. It was the middle of the night. So they were, they were, they were running back and forth. They, needed, they couldn't see anything. And it came to the point that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they thought that, you know, it, it wasn't the Jews. It just collapsed. But the Romans thought that it was the Jews were attacking them. But they couldn't find any Jews fighting. So now the Romans thought that the Jews infiltrated the camp and pretended to be Romans. So the Romans were walking around being like, what's the secret passcode? They had a secret passcode. They're like, are you a Roman? Are you a Jew? We don't know. We can't see you. Meanwhile, they found out that everybody was really you know, a Roman person over there in the camp and they calmed down. But the following morning, on the remaining towers that they had, they placed these javelin hurlers, these archers, these sto- stone throwers, these these catapult machines that would be able to sort of like throw stones in a sort of like a missile uh, you know, way into Yerushalayim. And while they were able to go and they wound up and they threw these missiles, these rocks, and while they were doing that, the Jewish people couldn't throw anything down at them. And this is how they were able to continue, you know, banging down the walls or trying to bang down the walls and throwing the missiles over into the city. In, by the year 70 Common Era, the seventh day of Er. The first wall was breached. Yushalayim had three walls surrounding it. By the seventh day of Er, the first wall was breached. By, and what happened was, is then when that, that was breached, all the Jews moved in to the second wall. By the twelfth of Er, the second wall was breached. Now, even though the second wall, there was, you know, the, even they, the Jewish people kind of got it back because. The old city, and even if you go now to the old city, it's like twisty, winding paths. And the Jewish people took advantage of that. They knew it was their hometown. They knew the sewers, they knew the roofs above. So the Romans came in and they broke down through the second wall out of the 12th of the year, but you had the Jews in the sewers and the Jews on the roofs. They were going and they were shooting and killing Romans from all ways. They were able to push the Romans back out of the second, second, uh, second wall. At this point, the Zealots thought they were invincible. They're like, you saw that? The Romans came in and we were able to push them out. We were able to go and take them out to a different level, to, to, to the next level. And however, at this point in time, the, at this point, the, the Jewish people, they were going through a very, very difficult time. 
And that is because they didn't have any food, like we said before, and it was getting worse and worse. And the famine started getting very, very bad that the Jewish people started selling their possessions and they wanted to go and, and sneak out and go and surrender to the Romans. And when the zealots saw that there were people carrying a lot of money, they were like, wait a minute, you're trying to defect? You're trying to go out? And they went and they killed anybody that wanted to go, was captured with a lot of money, they figured that you were trying to go out and go defect, go, go to give yourself up to the Romans. They went and they killed those people. The Jewish people killed all the Jewish people. So the Jews didn't know what to do. They wanted to sneak out, but they couldn't be caught carrying money. So the Jewish people started swallowing their money. They took the jewels and the diamonds and the gold coins and they started swallowing them. And some of them were able to sneak out. And they were able to go and surrender to the Romans. But when the Romans saw, they were like, why are Jews looking through their feces? Why are they looking through that? And they realized that they saw the Jews were taking out diamonds and gold out of their feces. That they went and they realized what the Jews did. And now the Romans, instead of having mercy on the Jews that surrendered, they went and they brutally murdered the Jews and they cut open their stomachs and they searched for all the gold and the diamonds that the Jews had hidden in the stomach. And the famine got so bad that if anybody had a private stash or stores of food that was hidden inside, the zealots, if they found them, they, they figured that they're you know, deserting the, the Jewish nation and they, they murdered them and they took their supplies. And if somebody would even dare to roast grain, it was the smell would seep outside and people would barge in, break into the, to, you have food? Nobody had any food. There was no, to the point that they didn't have any food, that the people were eating insects. They were eating rats, spiders, snakes, frogs, whatever they could get their hands on. There was no food in Yerushalayim. Vespasian put a siege around the city. The inner zealots, they took all their food for themselves, anything they had to go because they needed the warriors to have food. So what if the Jews were left with nothing? And if they had something, the zealots came and they took it away from them. So if they saw a dead animal, kosher, not kosher, didn't matter, they would, people would fight over it. When it comes to starvation... All human emotions go out the window, especially the sense of shame. Husbands ripped away foods from their wives. Mothers grabbed away foods from the mouth of the babies. There was family members that were lying in their arms, they were dying, and they would not give them the life-saving food nourishment that they would need to survive. Because they came to such a point of starvation that anything that they had, everybody kept for themselves. And if somebody was eat, caught eating something, other people would go and choke them to try to regurgitate, to bring out the morsel of food that they swallowed. And to make matters even worse, the zealots, which had food, but they wanted to increase their food. So they would go and steal anything that they find, any other food, and they would torture the citizen, they torture Yerushalayim, they torture the people over there. Again, you have Jews against Jews, unfortunately. And when you finally got to the point where the Jewish people are like, you know what, forget about it. I'm just going to go out. I'm just going to leave. I'm going to go and surrender to the Romans. If the zealots found out that somebody surrendered to the Romans, they would kill the family. It was sort of like a mafia that had acted. And to make matters even worse, it wasn't like the Romans were any better. The Romans, when the Romans caught the Jewish people and they came and they surrendered them, they would kill them also. They would take the wives and the babies and they would kill them. The wives and the babies, they came, they would try to look, eat grass. That's what they were eating. They would try to look for grass on the ground to eat. But the Romans, they killed even the children. Why? Because the children shouldn't grow up to be fighters like their fathers. 
And when the Romans captured the men, they would take them and they would crucify them on the walls of the city, pointing towards Yerushalayim. And it came to a point that about 500 Jews were crucified every single day. It came to a point where there was no more a lack of spaces on the crosses. And you know what the Zealots did? The Zealots would find a family member that snuck out and joined the Roman government. The Zealots called over the family. Come, your cousins? You want to see your uncle? Look what happens when you defect to the Romans. Look what happens when you give yourself up to the Romans. Look, and they would go and they would show the Jewish people their family members being crucified on a cross, being crucified on a piece of wood. And this caused the people, he says, you know what, if this is what the Romans are, then forget about it. I'm not going to join, and they joined the Zealots. Other people said, you know what, forget about this, forget, I'm getting killed from inside, I'm getting killed after, they just jumped off the walls. Take their chances with whatever happens. In the meantime, this is what happening was inside Yerushalayim. Outside Yerushalayim, the Romans were... <coughs> going with their ramps, they're building ramps, they were building these battering ramps, they were going and they were trying to go and destroy the walls. And you had the army, the Jewish army, the Zealots, they went and they dug a tunnel under the ramps where they had these big towers and they wanted to, to go and, and shoot arrows into the Jewish people. And where they built these ramps, the Romans built ramps and put the towers on top of these ramps. So the Zealots went and they dug a tunnel under the wall of Yerushalayim and they dug a tunnel all the way under the ramps and they set these ramps up on pillars of wood. And they waited until the towers were built up to completion. And then they sent, they set the, the pillars that were supporting these ramps, which was underground. The Romans didn't even know about it. They set it on fire. And then when they set it on fire, all of a sudden the, the pillars collapsed and the ramp collapsed and the, the, you know, tower above it collapsed, collapsed and the Romans became very confused. What was going, everything came crashing down. And they came to a point where they went to the leaders, they went to the generals, and they said, we can't fight a city like Yerushalayim. So they burn everything, they destroy everything, we don't have any more weapons. Before whatever was, Titus went and he continued them, and he continued to pressure them, to go and continue fighting. I need a little bit more time, so bear with me. I know we're going a little bit over time, so if anybody does need to leave, by all means leave, but I want to finish the, you know, this, uh, this story, there's really a lot to speak about, and I really feel like this really puts you in a, in a right unfortunate, right unfortunate mindset when it comes to Tisha B'Av. Again, hopefully that we shouldn't have be in a fasting this year. But in the 25th year of Sivan, in the 70th year of the Common Era, there was two great tzaddikim. One was Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel and Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel was a Nasi, Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha was a Kohen Gadol, or better yet, the former Kohen Gadol. And they were captured by the Romans. And they started crying to each other. Yishmal, Yishmal, cried Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. He says, we're being led to execution as if we desecrated the Shabbos. As if we worshipped Avodah Zarah. As if we ended up doing Gila Arayas. As if we, were, we, we violated being murderers. So Rabbi Shmuel responded, but maybe, we're, maybe we weren't careful in taking care of the poor. Maybe we didn't judge cases correctly. Maybe we neglected the widows and the orphans. And Rabbi Shimon Begamil responded, he says, Yishmael, you know that it's not so. But we have to accept our faith. This is our faith. This is Minishamayim. And as they approached the executioner, the Kohen Gadol, Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Gamil goes and he says, the Kohen Gadol is greater than me. He says, let me be killed first. 
And the Kohen Gadol, which was Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, goes over and says, no. He says, the Nasi, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, he is greater than me. Let me be killed first. And each one is saying, begging, let me be killed first. They didn't want to see their friend be killed first. So the executioner said, you know, listen, I don't know, I'm not going to get involved in this. We're going to draw lots. And they draw lots. And Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel was to be killed first. And the executioner raised his sword and he cut off the head of Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, the Nasi of Klal Yisrael. And the head rolled down and Rabbi Shmuel picks up the head of the Nasi, the biggest rabbi in Israel. And he places his eyes, he's holding the head, he's placing his head against his head. And he started crying. And he started crying. And meanwhile, the executioner started laughing. And he says, why are you crying over your friend? Cry over yourself. This is going to be your, your end also. Meanwhile, there was a commotion that was going on. And the daughter of Titus goes and hears this crying, this moaning. And she goes and she looks out and she sees Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, the kind Gadol. And Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha was a very, very handsome man. And the daughter of Titus never has she seen such a more handsome man before in her life. And she begs her father, Titus, please, don't kill him. Let me have him. And Titus says, no, I'm not going to let you have him. But what I will let you do is I'll, I'll take off his skin and I'll be able to make you a mannequin and you can have his skin. And they started ripping off Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha's skin until they reached a place of where his tefillin rests and he laid out a big, big cry and his neshama left him. This is what was happening during the time of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. It comes to the 17th of Thomas. And we know the 17th of Thomas, Shabbat Thomas, is a day of the fast day that we also fast to this day. And this day, the carbon Tamad no longer was been able to brought. For two centuries, throughout the fighting, throughout the war, throughout the civil war, throughout what was going on in the Beis HaMikdash, the carbon Tamad was always been brought. Until Shavasar Thomas, until the 17th day of Thomas. This is when the carbon Tamad ceased to be able to be brought. And not only that, on the 17th of Thomas, the walls, the final walls of Yerushalayim were breached. The Jewish people still had the base on Megdash. They still went into the Temple Mount. But the Yerushalayim was now taken over by the Roman army. Starvation increased doublefold. Children were collapsing. Parents were collapsing. People were falling in the streets. You couldn't even bury the dead. There was no place. People dug graves in their yards and they just waited for death. Some people, what they did was they sat down against a wall just facing the base of Mikdash, just waiting for death. There was nothing else that they could do because they wanted the base of Mikdash to be the last sight that they see before they pass away. And unfortunately, throughout this time, you didn't hear mourning you didn't hear crying. You didn't hear any moaning. Hunger wasted at the people. The people had no, nothing inside them. They couldn't even cry at that point. The zealots, they had supplies. And they were able to survive during this time. And they saw these bodies of the Jewish people and they couldn't tolerate it. Instead of, they didn't bury them. They compiled, put them into to big piles and they ended up burning them. And when they couldn't do that anymore, they ended up just throwing them over the walls. And meanwhile, the Roman government, the Roman camps, they had enough food. They would roast things. They would put things that would make the smell reach the Jewish people. And they feasted in full view of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people see what they have. The 
battle went on from the 17th of Tammuz for a few weeks. During the 8th day of Av, the, when they were battering and they were smashing into the walls of the base of Migdash, but not a single stone moved. It was as if the, base of, the, the walls were fighting back. And the enemy decided, the Roman government decided, the Roman emperor decided that they went and they set fire to the surrounding area of, of the base of Migdash. And this is where the last battle took place. It was the next day, the ninth day of, of during the morning hours, that the base of Migdash was burning. And even though the area, some area was still intact, there was very, very heavy fighting. The Romans breached in, they saw that the, the wall was on fire, they breached in, and there was a very, very big fight that was going on in the base of Migdash. Rome, one Roman soldier went and they put through in a, another, uh, you know, sort of less like a, a firebrand into the base of Migdash, and that spread in even quickly, and it started burning up the whole base of Migdash. And the Jewish people tried desperately to extinguish this fire. But it was as if this fire came back from Shemayim and they could not take it out. No matter what they tried, they could not take it out. The rest of the ninth day of Av and the next day, the tenth day of Av, the flames rose up to Shemayim. And in this accompanied the cries of the Jewish people. And the people could not endure this. They could not fight anymore. And they saw the Beis HaMikdash being destroyed. They saw the essence of what they were fighting for for all these years. They just threw themselves into the fire. They preferred to die together with the Beis HaMikdash than to live without it. When the Romans saw that the Beis HaMikdash was going and they saw the people jumping in, they did not take pity. They went in and they didn't spare not the young, not the old. They went and the entire area of the Beis HaMikdash was covered with bodies. And before... Before the, base, before the entire Beis HaMikdash was consumed, before the inner, the Kedush HaKadoshim, the most holiest part of the Beis HaMikdash was consumed in fire, Titus goes in with his men and he enters the holiest place. And he enters over there and what does he do? He curses HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He curses God. And then he brings in a woman of ill repute into the Kedush HaKadoshim. He takes out a Sefer Taira he opens up the Sefer Torah and he uses the Sefer Torah as a bed and he does a very, very bad act with this woman on in the Kedush HaKadoshim with this woman. He then takes his sword and he slashes the curtains and it was a miracle that happened and it, it was as if the curtains began to bleed and Titus started shouting, I've killed the God of the Jews. I've killed God. The tragedy of the Jewish nation, this happened on the ninth day of of. The very same month, the very same day, 490 years earlier, that the first Beis HaMikdash was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the temple was destroyed. The Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. The Jewish people were slaughtered. There was no pity, not for women, not for children. The, the, the Roman government, they went and they took the, the, the kalim, they took the, the vessels of the Beis HaMikdash, and they waited till the entire the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. Entire the Beis There was only one wall that didn't burn. And that was the Kaisal HaMaravi that we still have to this day for unknown reasons. Well, we know the reasons. The Medrash and Shea But for unknown reasons to the Roman government, that wall did not fall down. And that is the wall that we have today. And coming this Sunday, and again, in Merit Hashem, that it shouldn't be. It shouldn't, we shouldn't have to go. Mashiach should come. And we shouldn't have to go and fast on this day. And we should have a day of Simcha. But in the case that it does not happen, we mourn 
on this day. And it comes Sunday. The purpose of this class was to realize and to understand of what we're mourning for, what we're seeing for. We see the sinas the unfortunate of where the Jews ended up, the civil war, we could have survived. We could have. We could have survived. We had the, we had the resources. But we didn't. Again, this is, this is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, obviously. But again, we are also to blame. So when it comes Sunday, and we're sitting on the floor, and we're mourning over the base of Megdash, stop for a second and think about what we spoke about today. And let that put yourself in your mind and realize of what we're really mourning for. With that, we will open up to any questions. You could type in any of your questions inside the question box, uh, the chat box over here. First question that we have, am I a Chabad Shliach? Uh, no, I am not a Chabad Shliach. I, I respect Chabad very much, and uh, I, you know, I love them very much, but I am not a Chabad uh, Shliach. Okay, next question. If the situation was so bad, and this was what the Romans did to those who escaped. How did Rachel and her father, Kabbalah escape? It seems that both sides wouldn't want any survivors. Okay, so this is, uh, first of all, we have to back up a little bit. So Kabbalah was, um, there, there were people that survived. There were people that survived there this, this time. And if you, if you go to um, Rome, near, not too far, from the Colosseum, there's something called the Arch of Titus. And where you see, um, inside the Arch of Titus, you see there's a picture of people in chains carrying on their backs a menorah. And the people in chains were Jewish people. The Jewish people were taken as slaves, and they ended up, you know, they ended up in the Colosseum. And it was, this is maybe for a different, you know, class at a different time, but what happened afterwards, again, the destruction of Beitar, there's a lot of things, the Asara, Ruge, Malchus, there's a lot of more to discuss about this, and we just gave a little bit of a taste on this, uh, you know, on this subject, but it's something that it was, uh, um, you know, the Jewish people did survive, and we see that over there, and they, and they took out the, you know, the candle of the Beis HaMikdash, and, you know, very unfortunate, there were people that survived, and, and to some point later on, not everybody, not everybody, uh, you know, survived, especially when you go through Beitar. But there were there were survivors coming out from it. Okay. Next question. Uh, thank you so much for the share. Can the Rav please say the reason of why the Kotel is still standing? The Medrash and Shir Shem. There is a okay. So there's a Medrash and Shir Shem that goes and says that the Kosel Hamaravi, the Western Wall, will stand until Mashiach comes. If you want to know why this is still happening, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for whatever reason, I am not God's accountant, and again, this is to HaKadosh Baruch Hu Chesed, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu said that there will be one wall of the Beis HaMikdash that will still be standing, that for generations to come, for centuries to come, for millennia to come, that the Jewish people will be able to come and to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. While we don't have, we don't have the Beis HaMikdash, one of the most the most, let me correct myself, the most visited place in Eretz Yisrael. If you go to Eretz Yisrael and you only have a few hours and you don't know where to go, there is one place that you're going to go and that is going to be the Kassel HaMaharavi. You're going to go there and you're going to, if you want to have one place at Daven that is the most visited place, because Baruch Hu wanted one place, at least one place that the Jewish people could connect, to connect and to realize what they're missing. 
And in fact, if you ever go there on Tisha B'Av, it's packed on Tisha B'Av. It's packed over there on Tisha B'Av. There is where you can really see the morning of look to see what, what we once had. And all that's remaining is just one wall. One wall that the chesed of the Rachamim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, saved that for us. That we're able to see, have a little taste, a little connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Next question. How you know all this? Okay, so, well, that's a good question. How do I know all this? So, um, the answer is uh, learning, I guess. We have to go and we have to learn. There is a lot, a lot of... In fact, this information was... Um, it was a very brief, you know, information. There was a lot more that I had to skip over to just to try to get into it. But through history, through Midrashim, through Gemaras, we have different, uh, you know, um, you know um, segments that we could take out and we could piece together. But it happens to be that a very, very big part, especially of this last share that I gave, this, this particular share that I gave, this, a lot of it comes from the history of, of Josephus. Josephus wrote this down. And he wrote down a few of, uh, you know, the history of the Jews, antiquities of the Jews, for example. And you're able to go and you're able to read to see what happened. And we also have Midrashim. We also have certain Gemaras of what happened. So, uh, again, the, the, the base of Migdash was destroyed in the year 70. The Mishnah was written about the year 200 Common Era. The Gemara was written about 200 years after that. So we have Gemaras, we have Midrashim, we have information written about this. And we learn. We have to learn. We have to, fo- we have to go, we have to grow, we have to learn, we have to understand what we're mourning, we have to understand what we're doing. Here's a good question. Hard question. A sad question. But a good question. I don't feel sad or anything. What should I do? And that's very, very common. Very, very common. Uh, you know, and in fact, you know, again, I hope that I won't have to come and I won't have to speak, but I, I'm scheduled to speak uh, you know, in Brooklyn on Tisha B'Av, and I was thinking about speaking about that topic. You know, we're sitting over here almost 2,000, again, almost 2,000 years after the destruction, right? 1950-some, you know, years after the destruction. You know, like, all right, you know, it happened already. You know, like, I don't... You know, I don't feel that bad. You know, I should. I, I don't. But like, what should I do? Like, how am I supposed to go and make myself feel bad? Or how am I supposed to better yet make myself feel sad? So, I guess I'll share with you what I do. And what I do is, after I say kinnis, on Tisha B'Av morning, I go to my room, I go to my office, I lock the door, I sit on the floor, and... I start reviewing certain things and I start going through specific kinas. And for me personally, there are certain kinas that really hits it home emotionally. One of them is the Asaru Gemachos kinas. And I go through that kinas and you, and you look at that, you read that. How can you not feel sad? How can you not cry over the destruction of the G'daylin? How can you go and you realize what the Beis HaMikdash stood for? So you want to know what I think that person should do if they can't feel sad, and that's it. Learn about it. Learn about it, put yourself in the room, and meditate on that. Realize of what we lost. Realize, you know, you think about the Holocaust, you feel sad. Like, I, I, I lost family in the Holocaust. You know, you, you think about it, you, what, you know, when you, when you start picturing of what we lost, you can start feeling bad. But most importantly, we're mourning over the fact that there's a purpose in this world. And that purpose is that we should have a connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
And that was the base of Mikdash. And we no longer have it. HaGadosh Baruch Hu doesn't have a place in this world. If you love God, I know everybody does. So that's, feel, feel sad about that. Feel, bad, feel sad about the fact that HaGadosh Baruch Hu had a home. And, and we destroyed it. It's been nine, almost 2,000 years. And it hasn't been built. And it's our fault. Because that's going to make you feel sad. Next question. What is taking so long for Mashiach to come? One word answer? Us. We're taking so long. Mashiach will come, the Gemara says, either in a generation when it's worthy or a generation when it's completely not worthy. But at the end of the day, it says we have to fix certain things. One of them is being sin aschinam. It says you want Mashiach to come? We have to fix, we have to look into ourselves. We're the reason Mashiach is not here yet. Nothing else other than us. Okay, next question. Why was everyone so crazy then? People do bad things now, but not to this level. Why, oh, so why was it so crazy in that level? I'm going to start, I realize now there's a lot of questions coming in. I'm going to start answering them much quicker. I didn't realize how, usually we don't have so many questions, but Baruch Hashem, we have a very, very nice uh, volume of people over here. Thank you to Project Light. <laughs> so we're going to go um, a little bit fast through these, uh, through these questions so we can be able to, get to answer these questions. Why was everyone so crazy then? You have to realize it was a time of the base of Migdash. It was a different time. We had HaKadosh Baruch we had Nevi'im, we had the Kohanim, we had the Nesim, we had the leaders of the nation. We were on such a high level. We saw HaKadosh Baruch There was nobody that didn't believe in HaKadosh Baruch Even the people who weren't religious to a certain extent, they just changed the religion to make it a certain way because they can't say that the religion doesn't exist, that God doesn't exist. So it was a different time. Next question. Uh, it was a quiet comment. Thank you so much. Baruch Hashem, thank you. Uh, next question. What is the main thing that you should do on Tishabav? One of them is, is we mourn. One of the main things is we mourn over the destruction of the Beis Amedash. We were mourn. Uh, the, this is, it's, it's an actual thing that you should do is mourn over the destruction of the base of Megdash. Next question is, will this shear be published by Tishbab? Emir Tashem, I hope to uh, have it edited and up. Emir Tashem, hopefully by tomorrow morning. I hope. I hope depend, it depends on my computer. That's what it depends on. Okay, next question. If the ashes were still rising on the 10th of Av, how come we don't mourn that day too? But we're allowed to listen to music and other things uh, that you can do during mourning. So actually, many do mourn also on the 10th day of because of that reason itself. How did Nezhal have enough food for 21 years? The next question. So there were three very, very wealthy people. And the wealthy people had storehouses. Think about it as warehouses. Warehouses of grains, wood, oil, food that would survive for 21 years. Yerushalayim was very, very large. And it had large warehouses that was enough to suffice for Yerushalayim to survive for 21 years. Okay. Uh, very good. We learned this in Historia class this year. Baruch Hashem. I'm happy that uh, um, this is a review for you. Okay, next question. How does it work that a certain place a, is a Makam Kaddish and the Shekhinah is closer there? We can connect Hashem anywhere, so why is that even a thing? Ooh, this is a good question. This is a very good question. How is it that, that you know, we have a place where, you know, the Beis HaMikdash, that's the place of a Kaddish Baruch or the Makam Shekhinah. Why, you know, we can connect Hashem anywhere. So there's a lot, a lot to speak about this. 
there's almost a whole class that I gave just on this topic, but I'll give you just a very, very brief answer. Why did we need a base amygdala? Why not I could just Baruch Hu go and rest on everybody? And the answer is that I could just Baruch Hu rest as Klal Yisrael as a group. The Shachanti Besecham. I dwelt amongst all of them. That's why when we build a base amygdala, we all built it together. As, a, as the, the Pasuk says in, in, you know, in Truma, you go and you give money and you give your tzedakah because your heart desires. What does that mean that you're giving money? What does it mean that you're donating to go and build a base of Medosh? We all, it's a collective, it's a unity. You know where HaKadosh Baruch Hu rests? Yes, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is everywhere. But you know, want to know where the Shekhinah rests in this world when it comes down to this world? When we're united. And you want to know what that unity was? That unity was the base of Medosh. And that's why the destruction of the base amygdash, people think about it, it was a punishment. Yeah, yeah, of course it was a punishment. But it was really, it was a cause and effect. We weren't united anymore. So the base amygdash had to be destroyed. The base amygdash was all about unity, was all about achdash, was all about getting together, and that's where HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes and rests. When we're united, that's when HaKadosh Baruch Hu rests. When we're not united, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to go. And that's, where we, that's, the, that's the foundation of what the base amygdash stands for. It stands for everybody united together. And that's why it was removed when there wasn't unity anymore. Um, thank you for all the kind words. I'm just going to skip over it because of the, the, uh, the time. I really appreciate it. It's beautiful words. You guys are still telling me. Thank you very much. How were they able to go into the base of English if it was b- burning? If, you know, we should never know from this. But in war, you don't think twice. If you're going and you're fighting and you're destroying, you go and you fight against anything. It could be fighting, fire going around you, they would go to the point that people were suicidal. Romans, Jews, it was suicidal for, for their cause. And people ran into the base of Migdosh, even if it was burning. Um, okay, there was another question. I'm not sure what that means. I'm speaking in brown. I don't know, so I'm going to have to skip on that. Okay. Uh, you said you based your share off of Josephus, but I thought we don't go by his book as reliable because he was biased to the Romans. Yeah, so my, very good, very good uh, um, point. That uh, we speak a lot about Josephus, but we don't go based off everything because he was technically biased to the Romans because the Romans were overlooking his, uh, his work. So that is why it wasn't just based off Josephus. And even if we use Josephus, we use Josephus and how the Rabbanim go and extrapolate the information from it. Again, there's a lot of Rabbanim that took information out of Josephus and there's a lot of history books. Even if you go and you open up, uh, I guess one of the most famous historians nowadays, Rabbi Beryl Wine, you go and you open up the books, there's a lot of information there that's based off, Josephus is at the bottom line a uh, known as a uh, an historical an historical uh, information, he's known as to be as to be uh, accurate uh, to the most to the majority of the extent. And again, we took it from Madrashim and other sources as well. Next question: How can we make ourselves really wait for Mashiach and really believe every day that he can come any day? That is not only a good question, but it's true. Very, very many people have a hard time, and it's it's a work. It's not easy. It's not just something, it's something that you have to work on. People have, a, you know, a Mashiach outfit. People have something that they put on the side for Mashiach, and that's what you should do. You have, you have to go and you have to peace Ali Yeshua. One of the questions that they ask you, the Gemara Kedusha goes and tells us, they ask you with this after you come up to 120. See, peace Ali Yeshua, do you await the salvation? So it's something that we have to do, even though it's difficult. What can I do to make Mashiach come faster? Be a better Jew. Can I go? Can I get away with saying just like a short answer like that? I think so. We're just going to go with that. Okay. Um, 
how do we practically re- how here's a great question how do we practically work on reducing sinas chinam a very very good way is to daven for other people because when you daven for other people you're, you're showing the love to them what is a good idea to do on a fast day a good idea to do is to listen to shirim uh, Baruch Hashem for Torah anytime that you have plenty of live stream shirim that are going on throughout the entire day listen to shirim get yourself into the mindset of what you're mourning for the entire picture that you painted for us does make me feel sad in so many ways. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, but Baruch Hashem. Unfortunately, that was the point. Um, thank you very much. And this, yes, this will be on Torah anytime. Next question. It is sad that we lost... By the way, I've got to say, this is amazing. I don't know. Project Like, you guys are amazing. You guys have so many questions. I love it. This is unbelievable. The amount of growth and desire that you know you guys have is unbelievable. I just want to give you a bracha that Amir Hashem, your desire to go should continue with this because this is unbelievable and how many questions that are coming in. Really, really unbelievable. Okay, next question. It is sad that we lost a certain level of connection with Hashem, but what, what's the significance of the Beis HaMikdash other, as, other than the symbol of the connection? So there's a lot. So, so really, the significance of the Beis HaMikdash, when you think about it, it's not just the connection, is that we had the fact that we had karbanos. We had the fact to be able to be atoned for our veros. We had Kohanim Gedolim, we had Urm Vetumim, we had the ability to go and to speak to these, you know, Gedolim, to these, these prophets on, on what we were going through. It wasn't just a connection of, between us and, and Akadosh Baruch Hu, but it was a place that we could reconnect, so to speak, of where we fell off. Okay. Um, moving forward, where are we over here? What are you supposed to do on Tishbav? If you're a horrible faster, but you can't watch because it, but you can't watch because it doesn't fit the day. I'm not sure what that means, but if you're referring to like watching movies or TV or things like that, it's better to sleep than to do those things. So if you can, then then it's better to go to sleep than than watch secular stuff. Okay, why is it fair that Joseph, that Joseph and not in the USA where most people live? I'm sorry, I don't understand that question. You feel free to respond to reply back. I feel so bad for all the things I did this year, but I don't know how to start doing tshuva. Like, I feel pretty low. That in itself means that you're already on a high level. <laughs> the fact that you're already feeling bad about it, it's already part of the tshuva process. So yes, you know, we are human. And yes, we may have fallen. Start doing tshuva. And in fact, of stands for, the letters of is Aleph Beis. It stands for Elul Ba. Elul is coming. Elul, what's Elul Tishabav? I mean, not Tishabav, I'm sorry. Rosh Hashanah. We have to figure it, we have to start working on Elul and start fixing us up. Oh, this is a question. I don't even know how to respond. Like, this is a... Who is Hashem? Hashem, who is God? How do we define God? I don't even know how to... But I'm assuming this question is a very superficial question. We're dealing with Hashem. When I say Hashem, I'm referring to God. If you're dealing on a more of a deeper question, that is the creator of all. Okay, next question. What about the first base on Megdash? Thank you for this question. Excellent. So it happens to be that uh, we spoke about this, I think, two years ago. I gave a three-series class as well on the destruction of the first base on Mikdash. And Bli Nether, if I remember, I'll try to send it to, to, um, to I, I believe it's Blimi, right? Uh, then I'll try to send you the links. Bli Nether, if I remember, I'll try to send the links that if you want, you could share with the group on the, the same thing that we did on the second base on Mikdash. We spoke about the first base on Mikdash as well. Okay. Okay, a lot of questions are repeats, so I'm skipping those because we spoke about that. Sinas Kingdom destroyed the base on Mikdash by but it involved groups of Jews that were doing terrible things. How do we view those Jews? Is our hatred of them 
Is our hatred... Oh, I lost the question. Where was that? Is our hatred of them considered sinat skinam? Are we supposed to work on that? I wouldn't say to judge people in the past. And again, there are different things that Rabbanim speak about that yes, you could hate and you could... I think a safe answer is that you know, we're sad about the past. Let's not judge the past. The people are living in a different time and it just doesn't end well when we start judging people, whether in this world, in the ne- in, you know, previous lives, whatever it was, even though there are certain scenarios where, yes, we could, but if you ask my own, my own humble opinion, you know, this is the part that we feel sad, but don't start dwelling on whose fault it was. It was our fault. That's, that's what we have to do. Okay. We always learn about scary things that ha- will happen by Mashiach. Why should we not be scared? So the answer is that there are certain... Yes, Mashiach comes is the, the war of Gog and Magog. There's very, very bad things happen. The simplest answer that I could give you is that we want Mashiach not for ourselves and not because we're going to be like, yeah, we're the rulers, guys. You know, like now we're going to rule the world. But we really want Mashiach for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's the real reason. We want the, the, the Shekhinah to be presided over the world. We want to... The, we want Hashem's name to be one. During that time, okay. Um, questions I asked, which we do at Tishbab, we spoke about that. Okay, getting close to the end of the questions. Why is the fear that the coastal in Israel should be in USA? People never get to see it. I don't understand the question again. I'm sorry. Please respond that one more time. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, someone mentioned over here about it, uh, you know, share about the Torah and science. Yeah, okay, fine, good, excellent, I agree. Okay, what, why do people say after 120? We'll have to say if we wait for Mashiach, it sounds like everybody will die. Well, that's an interesting question. Is that the question is, why do we say Adam Avast and we should say until Mashiach comes? Mashiach is coming right now. Maybe that's a question. That's a good question. We should say that. That's a very, I don't know if I misunderstood your question, but I like that question. I don't have an answer for that, but I like it. Okay. Main thing, okay, this question keeps on coming up. What should I do on Tisha B'Av? Again and again and again. Okay, so uh, uh, we, on Tisha B'Av we mourn. We, we mourn the destruction of the base on Mikdash. How are you supposed to do that? So there's, there's, there's special prayers that you're supposed to say, tefillah, that you're supposed to say, the kinnas, uh, echa at night. And you should say it. And if you have a hard time, you know, getting to connect to it, I strongly recommend... On Torah anytime. It's a, every year it's live uh, streamed by Rabbi Fischl Schachter. He goes through before you learn every kinna, before you read every kinna, he goes and he sort of says a little story, a little background on the kinna, and he sort of gets you that the, into that mindset. I strongly, strongly recommend it from my shiva in Brooklyn and Ar Yitzchak. Um, strongly, strongly recommend it. If you're a male and you want to be able to go, you go to Ar Yitzchak in Brooklyn. It's amazing the, the, you know, the connection that you're able to have over there. You have a professional chef, an amazing, amazing speaker. And if you can't make it over there or you're a woman or whatever it is that the situation you're in, you can go to Torah anytime and you can listen to the kinas there and you can really say it together and really get into the right uh, mindset. And after that, get into the morning and say there's shiurim live on Torah anytime time, like throughout the day, not only one live, you could go and you could pick live speakers throughout the time. So that's what I would recommend, uh, you know, to do. Okay, when a few more questions came in, uh, when people are doing things that we know are wrong and that we shouldn't do, how could I keep in mind not to do what that person is doing while still not having sin skinum towards them? Simplest answer, just because of the time constraint and the, and the time, the hour, I would say daven for them. Davin for them does major, major things. If the Kharban was completely our fault, then why were the Romans to blame? And if they were to blame for it, then we didn't deserve it 
and why are they allowed to do it? So the base Amigdash was destined to be destroyed because of our sins. The reasons of why we're upset, or whatever the words, the, the verbiage that we use for, for the Romans, is that the Romans were the messengers. And again, oh, don't blame the messenger. But at the end of the day, Yaakov Baruch was going to punish the Romans also. Because you didn't need to be the messengers. You didn't need to do it. Even though it was this decreed from Yaakov Baruch that it was destroyed, but Yaakov Baruch was going to tell the Romans, you didn't have to be the messengers to do it. So again, even the Romans were the messengers, and really, we're the ones uh, that are to uh, blame, but the Romans are going to get their due uh, punishment in uh, in their, you know, according to what Yaakov Baruch decides. People talk about and darshan about sinas chinam, but nothing is happening. Tips for a bad faster. Two different questions. So you're right. Sinas chinam is a very, very big problem. Proof is we're still in where we are. Uh, and that's why one of the things that I have found to be tried and work is that when you, don't say you don't like somebody, daven for them. Because when you start davening to them, you start having a different feeling towards them. So yes, everybody has to do on their own. We all have to work on our own. Sinas Kinam is, is something that's, it's, it's a collective thing. You can't tell somebody else, hey, by the way, you don't hate that other person. We all have to work on ourselves. So we're, whatever, how many where people are in this group, you know, today, whoever's listening to the class, we're working on ourselves. Not to hate other, you know, other people. How do you do that if you hate somebody else? Daven for that other person. One of the many re- ways to go and to, um, and, and to work on it. Okay, tips for a bad faster. Keep yourself occupied. If you keep yourself occupied and busy, that is very, very good. So whether you're listening to a class, you're walking, you're doing something, whatever it is, the more occupied you're, you are and you're not thinking about fasting, the better off you are. But I'll tell you even better more, that if you're really in mourning, if you're really sad about the base of Mikdash, you don't have an appetite. So fasting becomes easier when you're doing what Tisha B'Av needs to be, with the point that when you're, when you, when you're really mourning on the base of Mikdash, you don't even have a... a, a a desire to eat. So number one, keep yourself busy. Number two, keep yourself busy with making yourself realize of what you're mourning for. And if you do that, then you're not going to be able to, you know, you're going to be able to fast much easier. Okay. What time is Rav Shechter going to be saying, Kina, you have to look on Torah anytime. Maybe it's like 9.30 or, or 9-ish around that time in the morning. And it's also on uh, Motzah Shabbos as well, I believe. Okay. The Rav of Arshul was saying that part of the point is that we're doing nothing because we're so deeply grieving and almost apathetic. Unfortunately, you know, have to agree. We have to de- we have to definitely do more. Okay. Why, last question: Why do we fast? I think if we fast, we could con- if we don't fast, we could concentrate more on the korban. So fasting is the point of fasting is not just starving and just thinking about food. The point of fasting really is tshuva. That's really the purpose of the fast. The fast is really that we're doing tshuva, that we're mourning and we're realizing why we are where we are today and now what do we need to do? So when we fast, we, we put ourselves in a situation that we realize we have to change our ways. So really the focus really should be that tshuva. With that, that was the final question. I thank everybody for joining. A special, very, very grateful thank to Project Light and everything that they do. Um, and everything that they will continue to do to not only get people closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but also bring Mashiach b'mehera b'yameinu. Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.